question. Would a major improvement in community services and support for victims of crime reduce crime itself and increase public safety? Answer, an emphatic yes. So says Lenore Anderson, author of the book, In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. You know, study after study, David, has uh, shown that you know more than 90% of the people who are entering our jails and prisons, more than 90 have long histories of exposure to violence and victimization long before they ever committed a crime. This is Justice Voices, eye-opening stories and commentary about justice, healing, and safer communities. Welcome. Our guest today is Lenore Anderson, author of the book, In Their Names, subtitled, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. She's also the co-founder and president of the national organization Alliance for Safety and Justice. Lenore, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure to do that. We met at an event a few weeks ago at the University of Chicago campus, which happened to be on the same day that I had just recorded a podcast conversation with Lisa Daniels, who you know and is a remarkable woman who shared her story of healing and forgiveness after she lost a son to gun violence in Chicago. And I'm hoping listeners who haven't listened to that episode do that. What struck me in then after that conversation, listening to you at the event there in Chicago, was you touched on many of the same themes that Lisa and I had just discussed regarding justice for victims of crime, including survivors like Lisa, and how different justice looked for Lisa and many other victims than what probably most people in the public imagine or think of. Lisa talked about restorative justice, about justice as healing, which is a very different paradigm than the currently prevailing view of justice as punishment. Then at the event at which you spoke, Lisa and I were listening as you addressed the same central themes we'd been talking about, but you carried them further toward describing practical solutions and building that bridge between the need for change on the one hand and practical solutions on the other is why I was so eager to have you as a guest on this program. So with that background, that context, for the sake of those of our listeners with limited time, let's start with the big picture, the main ideas that you hope people will take away from this conversation and hopefully from reading your book. First of all, why did you write the book? What's the big idea that you wanted to write about? Well, David, I'm an attorney and a policy reform advocate. I've been working to change American crime policy for the last 20 plus years. That means I've spent a lot of time talking to legislators and decision makers in state houses across the country And one of the things I have found over and over again in our work to change policy is that there are some pretty significant myths driving public safety 
policy across the country. And I wanted to write this book because one of the foundational myths that I think has the biggest impact on stopping reform from becoming possible is this myth that all of that tough justice that built up across the United States in the last 40 years was good for victims and good for public safety. That's what victims wanted. Exactly. There's this idea among policymakers that you got to be careful. You don't want to reform criminal justice too much because it might be bad for victims or it might be bad for public safety. Well, in our work at Alliance for Safety and Justice, doing uh, advocacy and organizing at the community level, we know that that's just not true. In fact, the American criminal justice system has not ever been very good at protecting most people from harm or getting most victims real help. So I wanted to write a book to really tell that story, to tell the story of the gap between the needs of victims of crime and what the justice system does, and also to tell the story of what survivors who have been most harmed by crime and violence and least helped by the justice system are putting forward as the new solutions. You know, one of the things that have developed in previous episodes of Justice Voices is this this dichotomy between what we we call, and here I'm speaking as a former career federal prosecutor, uh, you know, working for the Department of Justice, and I take justice, uh, took justice and take justice very seriously, and yet what we talk about as justice is very often actually just a, a, it really would be better labeled as public safety interests. And as I've said on a, with the episode with Lisa that we were just talking about, uh, if it's not justice for victims, how is it called justice? And victims, in my experience as a prosecutor, are very often on the, sitting on the sidelines watching the whole thing unfold. And so we're pursuing public safety in the name of the victims and yet not pursuing justice for the victims, typically. And, you know, that that has a really uh, harmful impact on whether or not we're even able to achieve that that goal of public safety. You know, one of the um, things that happened, you know, rewind the clock. How did how did we get here? You know, in the 1980s, there was a call, um, there was a lot of political attention to rising crime at that time. And there was a lot of politicians across the political spectrum who called for toughening up the justice system to, to help more victims. Now, there's a reality here. You know, I'm also an attorney. I, I know what happens in criminal court. One of the things a lot of people don't realize is victims are really little more than witnesses to a case in criminal court, right? They, they have limited rights. Um, their experience in the, in the court process is often re-traumatizing. And there's very little that comes out of that that has, uh, you know, provided most people hurt by crime and violence with either closure or, you know, a pathway to healing. So, 
when those original calls for victims' rights came about in the 80s and 90s, they were hitting on something that's very true, which is that victims are disregarded by American criminal justice all the time. True. But the policy response to that problem was more money and more power for the justice system. And the problem with that response is we empowered a justice system that has actually never been very good at really providing dignity and providing healing to victims, never been very good at discerning what victims want or need out of the justice system. But that was kind of how we responded as, you know, at the, at the policy level. And so, you know, it's important to understand that. I think, you know, one of the things that we found, you know, my organization, we uh, interview and survey victims of crime, diverse victims of crime across the country. We've interviewed more than 10,000 victims of crime in the last decade. Um, victims of, you know, a wide range of crimes from uh, surviving family members of homicide to victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, you name it. And one of the things we found first is that there is no monolith, right? Victims have a wide range of experiences and opinions and needs from the justice system. But the one unifying theme that we have found is that most of the time what victims want is for the justice, uh, is for what happened to them to never happen again. They want the justice system to be able to stop the cycle. We have not built up in our infrastructure for public safety, the capacity to actually stop that cycle of crime, even though that's what most survivors would prefer at a policy level. Well, speaking of that, one of the themes we've touched on in, in several prior episodes of this podcast has been the connection between trauma and crime as a cause of crime, as well as an effect of crime. And that, you know, as we have, it's a commonly repeated phrase these days in circles that you and I move in, you know, that hurt people hurt people. And this, when we think of particularly violent crime, well, violent crime is something that particularly violence in, in its most serious forms is, some, is almost like a disease. And trauma is the carrier of the disease. We had an episode with uh, a couple of people. Michael Tafoya, for example, comes to mind. Eddie Bocanegra. Now, uh, these guys grew up in neighborhoods where they were victims of violence. And they turned to violence. Michael Tafoya described it as, I decided I needed to become what I feared. The only way to protect himself and his family was to become feared by the people he was afraid of. In other words, become the he became a victimizer and ultimately went to prison for having murdered somebody in a, in a gang shooting. All right, well, he kind of wised up, and that's a remarkable story, uh, and it's really an enlightening story. But the point that goes to what you're describing is trauma. Well, we're not addressing the underlying causes of why people became violent when we send them to prison, which on the one hand, one of my former defendants called it crime college. And uh, it's also traumatizing. 
And it, it's not addressing the problem. It's just kicking the can down the road. And we turn these people loose, and we expect after putting them in the concentrated company of criminals for a few years, they're going to come out less criminal than they went in. And this is the cycle you're talking about. And so it's not satisfying what victims want. It's not satisfying what the public wants. What's wrong with this picture? Well, you know, what's wrong is it, it just really hasn't been informed by the realities of how cycles of crime and violence happen. Um, we know quite a bit about how cycles of, of violence and crime happen. That, that data, that evidence, that research just doesn't inform our criminal justice system very much. You know, study after study, David, has uh, shown that you know more than 90% of the people who are entering our jails and prisons, more than 90 have long histories of exposure to violence and victimization long before they ever committed a crime. You know, when I was a young attorney uh, just um, starting out out of law school, one of my first jobs was uh, working with parents of incarcerated youth and, um, you know, helping parents advocate for alternatives to incarceration. I can tell you every young person I met that was facing time behind bars had been a victim of crime long before they ever committed a crime. But there was no, you know, and whether that's, you know, being sexually abused in the home only to be placed in foster care and sexually abused there, um, you know, or whether it's, um, you know, witnessing dozens of murders in in, in your neighborhood where um, chronic gun violence is a, is a severe public health threat. Those types of experiences there was no victims' rights movement for those kids that I was working with. Uh, there was no call to action to protect those children. Uh, that's because there's this sort of underlying hierarchy of harm in our justice system of whose victimization matters and whose victimization really does not. And that is really um, you know, devastating from a public safety perspective. If we know that too often most people who end up committing a crime long before needed protection and help and didn't get it, then you would think that our top public safety goal would be providing that protection and help. We need to put healing trauma at the center of our strategies for public safety. It would go so much further than, you know, putting people in toxic prison environments, um, you know, long, long after they've, they've actually ended up committing, a, you know, a crime. This is so critical, uh, too. I just want to underscore, you know, when we talk about uh, racial equality and we talk about uh, the need for a justice system that's not biased, this is not just a justice system that is um, trying to figure out how to eliminate bias in terms of who's incarcerated, we need to figure out how to eliminate bias in terms of which victims we care about and which victims we do not. And if we can stop with the discrimination that too many victims, especially victims of color and young victims experience, start investing in healing trauma, that'd be a real strategy forward. Well, you know, that... uh... That resonates with me for this reason. Most of the high crime areas, uh, particularly in Chicago, the neighborhoods, high crime areas, these are neighborhoods that are predominantly the residents are people of color. Okay. And so they're being victimized by crime. And we've just noted that so many of them as an adaptive behavior become perpetrators of crime. 
Now, I'm not saying that victims become perpetrators, but perpetrators started off commonly as victims. And I think what the point you're making is if they were addressing those needs of people as victims, maybe there wouldn't be as many perpetrators. And if we were addressing the needs of the perpetrators as victims and helping them heal from this disease of what uh, criminologist Lonnie Athens called violentization, this progressive adaptive uh, process, well, then you're dealing with this from a problem-solving point of view. You can't punish your way out of that. Yeah, you know, um, let's link up the victim services systems with the public safety systems to really illustrate what what you're just talking about, right? Yeah, build that bridge. In the 80s and 90s, when the call was for victims' rights and tough-on-crime braided together, and that resulted in an immense amount of power and discretion handed over to the criminal justice system, it resulted in, you know, what we now um, commonly understand as mass incarceration. It also resulted in a bunch of rights for victims, particularly the right to victim compensation, uh, the right to relocation assistance um, if you're hurt by violent crime, uh, the right to uh, long-term therapeutic support. Most states in the country have a constitutional amendment in their state laws for victims' rights that outline those things. Compensation, relocation support, victim assistance programs, those all sound fantastic on paper. But we've got to understand that those promise for rights have not made it to all victims equally. There is discrimination in which victims get access to that help, and that has a direct impact on our ability to move forward with public safety effectively. Let me just give you an example. Uh, a young man in Detroit, uh, Michigan, Eric, um, he was shot uh, as a bystander and became uh, paralyzed as a result of having been shot. That uh, The fact that he was in a wheelchair meant that he could no longer uh, do the employment that he was doing or live in the house that he was living in. That's an economic and that's a crisis, right? That's a personal and economic crisis for that young man. He applies, David, for victim compensation to get financial support to um, be able to recover his life, to get back onto a pathway of stability. Denied victim compensation applies again, denied again. This young man becomes so desperate to survive in the aftermath of being shot that he ends up deciding to sell his own pain medications just to be able to have money to live the pain medications for his injury. He then gets arrested and convicted for selling drugs. And now he can't get a job because of that old conviction. So I just want to connect this here. This is someone who 
despite having, you know, articulated rights in, in the state constitution to get things like, um, you know, financial assistance is denied. And then because of those denials is so desperate that he ends up becoming a part of the criminal justice system on the other end. These types of stories are extremely common. Um, you know, my colleague, Ray Winans, who, uh, you know, works at Detroit Families, um, and friends and who's now helping, uh, Eric, uh, with new pathways to stability, you know, Ray reflected, he said, you know, here's someone who was a victim of one public health crisis, you know, gun violence, who then contributed to another public health crisis in terms of, um, you know, addiction, drug addiction, all because he didn't get help as a victim. And that justice response, on the one hand, disregarding him as a victim, and then on the other hand, extreme punishment when he is then a perpetrator, that has lifelong impacts, not just on him, but on entire communities. And that's really what we're talking about when we're saying, listen, we've got to see all victims. We've got to protect all victims equally. And if we can do that and get real help to people in crisis, we go so much further along the path to public safety um, than what we've been seeing happening with this uh, this tough justice movement. Well, that link between victim interests and fighting crime, I think, is really important. People yes. need to understand that. That's right. I view myself as a crime fighter. I was. I am. I have a different concept of how to go about that strategically. But strategically, what you're describing is if we address, do a better job of addressing victim interests and victim healing, we're actually going after the root causes of much, maybe even most of the crime problems that we're trying to address by ineffectively putting people in the concentrated company of criminals and expecting them to come out less criminal and less traumatized. I have, I have spoken to so many um, survivor leaders ac across the country who are building violence prevention programs, who are building trauma recovery centers at the neighborhood level. And, you know, when, when talking to folks who are doing the work every day to help victims heal, one of the most common things I hear is, look, if we did nothing else, David, but actually just help victims heal, that alone would make so much more of a difference in our approach to public safety than the literal billions we spend on these sort of extreme punishments, um, you know, these, you know, mandatory enhancements and mandatory incarceration for this and that. And, you know, all of that money spent on that extremely punitive system is, is, is just completely wasted when you think about how cost effective and how dignifying it is to just help victims heal. Yeah, and then that connection is reflected in the name of your organization, Alliance for Safety and Justice. And I will comment, you have state affiliates and programs. Is that right? That's right. Uh, Alliance for Safety and Justice, uh, we're uh, an organization that's been around for 10 years now, and we operate in eight different states. Illinois is one of the states. Um, and we, uh, our flagship grassroots mobilization program is called Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, where we do leadership development training and grassroots advocacy with victims of crime, you know, across the country. 
one of the things we're sort of most proud of in, in Illinois' state where we've been able to do this is we have been advocating for community-based trauma recovery centers to help the um, victims who've been most harmed and least helped. And um, we now have 41. We started with only one trauma recovery center in California. And now um, through our advocacy to um, you know p- put state money into trauma recovery centers and grow them, there's now 41 trauma recovery centers ac- across the country. And there's five in the state of Illinois now. So we're really excited. You know, it's a whole new approach to public safety, right? The trauma recovery center model is like, look, we're going to help victims regardless of whether or not there's a prosecution, regardless of whether or not they can come into, you know, a prosecutor's office. We're going to go to their home. We're going to provide them with that emergency help in the immediate aftermath of getting hurt, help people relocate if that's what they need, fill out compensation applications, get therapeutic support, and also get things like jobs and housing. That's a model that helps victims heal, that helps families, and that helps communities. And that's something that can happen as part of a well-developed criminal justice system, but it doesn't have to be the criminal justice system. That's something that can happen, that communities can do. That's right. That's right. Now, that segues to my last question for you, because I know you've got an upcoming meeting here, so our time is limited. What can listeners do to make a difference, to do more than just see the need for change by going beyond that to become part of the solution? Well, first, I just want to offer that, um, you know, anyone who's listening who's been um, personally impacted by crime, violence, or incarceration who'd like to get involved, uh, please join Alliance for Safety and Justice. Um, you can go to allianceforsafetyandjustice.org and learn more about our programs and learn more about how to get involved. Um, the second is that I think it's critical, whether you're a, a systems official or a criminal justice stakeholder, that you really start to listen to communities and put community leadership at the center of your public safety strategies. You know, you mentioned the one and only, the remarkable Lisa Daniels at the at the beginning of the show, who is a surviving leader in Illinois, who's been advocating for reform for a long time. She's an example of the kind of leadership that uh, states like Illinois need, uh, people who have had experience, who have you know, ideas, thoughts, and are willing to take action to build new approaches, restorative approaches to public safety. So I would say invest in community leadership. And then the third thing that I think is really important is that people talk to their public officials. Um, You know, we still live in a time we all saw in this last election cycle, you know, politicians spend 40, 50 million dollars on returning to some of those old messages of the past, those old tough justice messages of the past. Those messages failed. They didn't bring us safety, and they hurt a lot of people in the process. We can do better. Um, Our public officials need to know that voters from across the political spectrum want them to invest in strong communities, not broken, tough justice practices of the past. Well, let me just say that I am grabbing hold of this concept that we're talking about here. And in fact, I'm going to, uh, we're launching a, a theme of our podcast programming that we have Justice Voices and is a theme of that, not as a separate podcast, but as a theme, Victim Voices. And so speaking to victims, their stories need to be told. Their voices need to be heard. And that is 
it, for the reasons that we've been talking about and that you describe so well in your book, uh, you know, which I encourage people to read. It's dense with just good information and and big ideas that can make a big difference. So we want to make sure that we provide a platform through this podcast and other programming for victims to be able to have their voices heard and their perspectives uh, recognized. And that, in turn, can be an effective way, and I believe will be an effective way, of fighting crime which that connection, the public just needs to get that in their minds, that in a lot of ways we've got it backwards. And doubling down on doing more harm than good does not solve the problem. Anyway, Lenore, you or I, either one, could get on our soapboxes and we could go for a long time. But I know you've, you've got a meeting you need to get to. I want to thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me, David. It's a it's a real honor to be in this conversation, and I so much appreciate all that you're doing to advance a new approach. Well, we're trying to do our part. And to our listeners, I hope that you come away from this conversation with a clear understanding that one of the most effective ways to fight crime and increase public safety is to increase community services and support for victims of crime especially in historically underserved communities. Every victim of crime deserves justice, which for most of them means two things. One, healing of their trauma. And two, effective steps to prevent others from being victimized, which usually means something more than just sending their victimizers to prison with all its criminogenic effects as criminologists call it. As I said during our conversation, anyone who thinks crime-fighting means confining criminal offenders in the concentrated company of other criminal offenders for years without addressing the underlying causes of their criminality should stop and think about that. To fail to address the needs of victims, including victims who become victimizers as hurt people hurt people, is neither justice or effective crime fighting. If you want to dive deeper into this subject, one good way is to read Lenore's book and visit informative websites linked in the show notes. And subscribe to this podcast to listen to more stories and voices about causes and solutions to justice and public safety issues. This is Justice Voices, 